Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. And we are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Yeah. And this week, some interesting stuff came up. We've been uh, <laughs> looking at a term you've coined for what do you call it? Venture orphans. Basically, these venture backed companies that are in year eight and stringing along with high burn and, and some form of recurring revenue, but they don't look like they have that IPO in sight anymore. So, like, how did you come across these companies? It is a category of thing. It's like an asset class in a sense of businesses. Yeah, I've called it all different things. I don't know if I take credit for coining these terms or if I saw them somewhere else and don't remember, but yeah, like venture orphans or third quartile VC backed companies. So you think first and second, they're growing fast enough to go on to raise more money. Uh, fourth is just dead. It didn't work out. But this quartile or venture orphans that maybe were just not a good fit for VC are like, they have a great product and used by loyal customers, but they're either break even, which is rare, or they're just losing a lot of money because they have a way bloated overhead because they're on this grow, grow path. And I think there's an opportunity to come in and be like a soft landing for all these you know, products or services in different forms. Like I really don't want to be a hatchet man because you do have to clean this up, right? It's way nicer to be like buy from a one person company that's just making a million dollars and give a bootstrapper a dream exit. So that right. would be my preference, but there is a lot of these venture orphans out there. Yeah. So it's usually either just a, somebody raises around maybe and of these companies, like they've been through a series A and it's, they couldn't get to B or they couldn't get beyond that. Is it typically a seed or an A round that just didn't come to fruition? Yeah, pretty much. If you're hitting like 500K, a million ARR, that's like you are at the stage of ready to raise a series A or something, but you just, mm -hmm. you don't have the growth rate to justify it. Like it's becoming more and more clear that maybe venture is not the right path for you. And so if you are making 500K a year, but you're also burning like $100,000 a month, you are going out of business like pretty quickly here. And often that's, you're looking at a aqua hire or you just shut the whole thing down. So I think we offer like a, an exit on the highway to, hey, you could continue on this legacy and everything could go well indefinitely with more calm goals in mind. Yeah, I think you're going to really be competing with corporations, right? So is that coming from venture for this third quartile, if you want to call it that, I think that the typical acquirer is there's a, a either another venture-backed company that's further along than you or an established corporation that's, like, hey, we want to do innovation and we're going to basically buy this innovation by picking up some more novel startup or, or something where it's more advanced. And I, I think of the world of corporate innovation, which what do people call it? Innovation theater, where you, they have a innovation department and they come up with ideas and they see it. And it's, it very seldom goes well. Sometimes it does work. So I don't want to shit on it entirely, but we've seen a lot of these companies that during certain seasons of their, their lifetime, they try to, Hey, what are we going to do in, in 10 years, 20 years? How are we going to be evolving our business? And acquisition is, is probably a, a good outcome for this. Looking at these businesses, it's again, I'd much rather be going after bootstrappers because the payout will be easier. There'll be something that I think would have a little bit more loving care to it. Not to say that the people in venture back companies don't love and care about their businesses, but it tends to be a little bit more stable growth and there's less of a mess to deal with. And tech debt is probably a big piece of that. And, and 
that's what I would be the most concerned with is how much time has passed since you started this? How many times have you pivoted? And that usually is leaves a nice, you know, nasty mark on code or, or whatever the infrastructure looks like. Moreover, going back to from the, the sale price perspective is like, how do you think about this? Because, right, you pay off a founder who's bootstrapped and you give him half a million dollars. And he's like, all right, great. But the time was worth it. I made a, a, a nice little chunk of change. It's a great, I'm walking away with a bunch of money in my pocket, but for a VC backed company, that's only worth a half million, that's raised a million. The way that they've raised the money they've, they've gotten from a VC firm, they've basically written off the investment. And now you, you have some really upset founders. I would probably guess that you're going to, would this be considered, you're not recapping the company. You're just, you know, everyone's walking away with nothing in a sense, right? Yeah. So it's definitely not a great financial outcome. I would view <laughs> the alternative as you're going under. That's the path you're on. Like you're, it's a sinking ship and we can rescue the product and save the customers that are really happy with the product and put it on a different path is more of what this is offering. And so we haven't really talked about it, but how we value companies is based on cash flow. And these companies have you know, wildly negative cash flow. So you have to come up with some, I don't know, some like new model of what you think this business could do with a more rational team and like a rational approach. But it is very different to what we're doing. And it's like definitely more work, which is why I think most people just keep their hands off and let it die. Right. Yeah. I think there's also this idea of you can keep your hands off, let it die. And then at the very last minute, you know, acquire the the assets for pennies on the dollar, which is the hatchet man job. So I'm familiar with a lot. I being in venture for what, uh, four years or so being close to, and these are, are companies that completed a seed raise, maybe got an A done and then are, are fledgling and, or a small A round done. Couldn't really, you always hear the term, we have several bridge rounds, right? These are companies that they, mm -hmm. they diminishing, I wouldn't call them down rounds because a lot of people say, oh, it's not an actual round, it's just a bridge round. We didn't really raise money, but you did. You got $50,000, $100,000 to cover payroll and during some awful season. And so I guess the profile and trying to think of what's the mind state of the founder, it's probably number one, try to save the jobs, save the team, because you've probably been spending two years or some amount of time promising people that there's going to be a payout. There's going to be some, and yourself, like you get up every morning, getting, trying to get excited about a sinking ship. It's hard. And I'm sure that there's a mental toll that takes. So as we're talking about all this, I don't want to diminish the fact that these are like people's lives and they spend years on these businesses and, and a lot of blood, sweat and tears. But the reality is that most of them fail. That's the venture game. That's like the numbers are that the majority fail and there's some huge winners and the investors know that and these are calculated risks. But for the players, for the, the employees, they are promised and maybe not promised. They don't get involved and take a pay cut because they think just for the fun of it, they're, they're getting sold. Okay, this equity is going to be worth something. You're going to have options. You're going to grow with this business. So when it doesn't go to plan and you're not taking the, the people with you, it's like, where do you slot in to have that conversation? So it's a tough one. I can't see this working great. I've, I haven't really seen it work. We, we did it at our you know, old firm where we incubated businesses and the founders had the lion's share of the, the equity. And then they would abandon something like after a year or two, they tried to run it. And, and then we would at the last minute, maybe 
take something over or try to salvage the IP from it, just in case we, we warehouse and say, hey, we'll keep the site running, we'll pay for hosting, it's up and running. But a lot of these businesses were also kind of service oriented. They weren't 100% tech. So a service business would just die, right? If yeah. people stopped running it. But there is like SaaS business could continue running with you know one employee indefinitely. Right. And there's value there. So this is to me more salvaging people's hard work instead of shutting everything off. It's he worked really hard on this for five years. Let us continue it and like continue on your legacy. Even if the reality is if it's making a million dollars, like you could save some of the employees. If it's making 200, $300,000, there's almost no situation where you're able to keep all these employees on full-time or even a few of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's a heartbreaking situation that you're coming into. It does feel like you're uh, a little bit of an ambulance chase chaser in, in a certain element. But at the same time, I mean, people are putting this work into it because that's probably the other conversation, which I haven't been a part of that one. But it's like the everyone's gotten those emails. We're shutting down this business. I know you've been using it for free or whatever for however long. And that's the reason we're shutting it down. But there, there tends to be these shutdowns that happen somewhere higher profile than others that you are letting your users down at the same time. Okay, we we rolled this service out and I've been here before with starting business where you re refer friends to it and they shut down in six months and they're like, thanks. So I, it's one of those things where I've stopped doing it. I stopped doing it when we were in the, the venture firm where it was like, but these are very early stage and don't get too used to it, but um, please try it out. It's like trying to preface because it, it it's just the nature of the game. Yeah. So I'm seeing more of more of I have a lot of friends in VC that are sending these companies to me. So we're going to have a lot of these discussions either way. I think there's just a lot of them out there that happen not to be a great fit for VC. So I think we probably end up doing a few of them, but I am definitely uh, conflicted about it a little bit. So one company that comes to mind that was also pretty publicly disclosed by the founder, and, and this was interesting. I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, shit. What is the name of the business? It was Josh Pigford on Twitter. He had the Bear Metrics. That's the name of the company. Yeah. And he he exited. So he sold the business and he had raised, I think, a seed or an A round or something where he got essentially the, the VC firm that gave him his initial funding. And I think to the tune of in the millions, maybe, I could, and I don't want to misspeak, but a, a fair amount of money that I think it was pretty noble of them to let the founders have his payday because they could have said, hey, we want to get liquidated first. And I don't think it would have eclipsed the sale price. I don't know, actually. But I, I thought that was an interesting outcome where he sold his business. He did raise some money and it, the run rate was good, but it wasn't good enough to, it wasn't IPOing or something where the outcome would have mattered to the venture firm anyways. So they wrote it off, didn't take their piece, let him have the payday. And, and he passed off this software to the acquirer. So I think that's probably a good profile to look after. I just don't know how many VC firms would do that where it's, Hey, I, I just found it. So bear metrics sold for 4 million. He got to walk away with uh, 3.7 million and the team got 300 K, which I don't know how much of a team he had or if it was yeah. more like a solo thing. And so he had raised an $800,000 investment in 2014. And General Catalyst and Bessemer just wrote it off. So yeah. they said, hey, you take your money. Yeah. And so some VCs will hide behind this. We have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders. Right. Like we have to get every little drop. But I actually think this is the best founder-friendly thing General Catalyst oh, yeah. and Bessemer could ever have done. Like it's so cheap relative to their huge funds. And now they have this like great PR thing forever. Yeah. It's worth it. It's weight in gold. So the goodwill that you, you earn 
And because 800,000, excuse me, it, it's just not going to move the needle at all for them. I don't know what the size funds are, but I'd imagine in the hundreds of millions, low hundreds of millions is a guess, if not greater. And why not have that sort of earned earned goodwill? But yeah, that, that's a, a good profile to maybe go after. I mean, he had a, a I appreciate his transparency when he did this, which is, I feel like people were shitting on him for, oh, that's all you got after all this time. It's three and a half million. It's pretty fucking great, man. It's, <laughs> uh, it's nothing to, to sneeze at. And so a uh, big fan of his on the Twitters. There's very few people I think that would be willing to expose the numbers. And I think that's a, a great move on, on the VC firm. But yeah, I think of it this way. You have these companies that are raising, they're not doing great. The chances that they're Raising from a Bessemer or General Catalyst are probably less high. And then they have like family and friends rounds. And then they have to explain to their family and friends that they're not going to get paid back. It's There's just tons of uh, potholes along this road. So I'm not a huge fan, but I'm not writing it off. I still want to look at this stuff. It's interesting enough. For sure. Yeah. We'll be seeing more of it. And we could talk about it on the podcast as soon as the deals like aren't live anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. What else has been going on? So I've been taught, so I'm doing all these guest lectures in the course, which I've been working on pretty hard this week. I made a lot of progress. I'll probably open up pre-orders in a couple weeks here since I'm traveling most of the next week. And talking with lawyers is always so funny. Like I see opportunity and they see risk. Of course. So <laughs> I want to provide like templates because uh, a lot of people just don't know uh, like how to actually transact on these deals. And there's a lot of legal questions around it. So I'd like to provide like generic legal templates and they're like, we can't provide generic legal advice. We need hundred page APAs, asset purchase agreements, and it's going to be a lot of work. And I was like, these side projects are transacting for a thousand dollars and people are just basically Venmoing each other. So this is like a huge step up. No one's doing a hundred page APA to do these transactions. And they're like, basically said, we don't think you should do it. We think it's super legally risky. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do it. And they're like, we don't think you should. It's pretty risky. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely doing it. Would you like to be part of it? And so they have to go take it to their the head of the firm. But yeah, they're going to help and do a few guest lectures, which should be super valuable. That's great. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, can we talk about them? Can we talk about the, the name of the company? I would like to after they commit. Yeah, true. <laughs> anyway, they're super, speaking of founder friendly, they're very, they've done all the, the legal work for my stuff. And it's always been super. I worked with one really big law firm when I, I sold my my agency and it was, you know, not a great experience and working with them is, is wonderful. They're a little more business minded or I should say small business minded. So big fans of theirs, but yeah, it's weird. I'm wondering when you look at like the Oric guide, which Stripe Atlas uses and all this boilerplate startup purchase agreement and, and Comstock purchase agreement, they probably, they were the first ones to do it in my understanding. And, and I think the, the attitude of that they took, which is, Hey, we just want to make this standardized and it's better for everybody. If you get more companies started, you'll get more companies that will come back to you when they raise their series A or when they are profitable. And that's when they can, you know, spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars on a, whatever legal services. So it seems like it would help the industry a little bit if there are more businesses getting started. But I, I can see from their perspective where it's every deal is a little bit of a snowflake and standardizing things could be bad because you're going to miss things or run into special cases. So I don't know. It's, I, this is my predicament as I always see both sides, but I like, what was the main risk that they were throwing at you? It's you're going to be responsible for people's bad legal docs. 
yeah, if one of these deals that happens because of the course goes south, like I could be legally responsible, which if that happens, like I'm running it all through an LLC, I'd probably just fold the LLC and whatever. But I don't think anyone is going to do that. And it's just, uh, it's, it's worth the risk. Like I think the opportunity is there and the risk is pretty minimal, which is what lawyers are there for. These guys are super smart. They poke holes and tell me all the risks. And then it's our job as like the business people would be like, I understand the risks. I still think it's worthwhile for the opportunity. Uh, yeah. It's just completely different mindsets, but they both have their role. The I know the founder of that that law firm is a, an entrepreneur. And I think he understands that balance and, and the attorneys are, are all wonderful because you're not dealing with a big team, it's a small team. But yeah, that's their job. Their job is to tell you what you're doing wrong and, and how it's going to get you in trouble. But the good news is if someone were to come after you for something like that, it's I guess, it can't you just say this is not legal advice? I'm sure there's like some... Banners, yeah, yeah, disclaimer. Sure. You can just put on something, and be like, Hey, this is what I've used, and you can tell people, but hey, if you're really spending your life savings on something, get your own attorney. This is supposed to be a class, a course. It's, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to get into some legal discussion, but like, how could you have any education if there's a liability associated with everything there? Right, which, you couldn't teach anything. So, right, the disclaimer is basically this is purely for educational purposes, like, engage with your own lawyer and do that. But I, I think that, for them, it's like an absolute no brainer. I think this is going to be the best possible marketing. Like you're going to get hundreds of super qualified leads that see you as like the first micro P attorney to turn to if they actually want real docs. Yeah. Which they would be great at it. I, I think they've, like I said, they've done uh, work with us and, and it's been just on a, a very high touch and yeah, so I want to be able to, hopefully they agree to do this. We can talk about them, promote them because big fans, there should be more law firms like them. But anyways, if you build a course, it's for education or better yet, maybe we should say for novelty purposes only. <laughs> Entertainment purposes only. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's to entertain you around buying small businesses. But yeah, I, I think this course is something I'm super looking forward to, to helping out on. You asked me to, to help out on some of the tech sides. So I looked at the notes you you put together, which you're very good at putting notes together, but uh, I'm excited to kind of do some of the talking and some of the pieces around the tech diligence, which, you know, and I'm finding some patterns I think that are just really useful in how do you find a team? How do you put one together? How do you try people out? How do you, you know, get a product from point A to point B? It's hopefully if you're somebody interested in doing this, you have some product experience, like you've built a website before or understand development a little bit, but I understand that's not always the case. So this should shed some light on how somebody who maybe hasn't done that before, at least just a playbook as like, what do you need to do at least to get started? Yeah, that's what they were asking yesterday is like, who is the target audience? And so I think it will be mostly on the buyer side, although I'd love to get sellers in there as well and educate them up. And I think the expectation is that you have some hopefully experience related to what you're buying. So you're buying a you know content company or FBA or you know, a SaaS, you have some experience and aren't starting from zero, but we'll definitely explain some of the basics as well. This is one of the things that I, I think about a lot as a technical person is like, how the hell do non-technical people build tech companies, right? It's I've worked with people that it's, you don't even understand how this works yet. There are, it ends up being like, what I've observed is, oh no, they're a killer marketer. Like they can get a million person following by sneezing and they're able to create controversy and whatever else. And then they're just good at identifying other people. But that's always in the early stages, it's always been mystifying to me how somebody who 
doesn't know the domain or doesn't know the, the at least the technical side to put a team together and know what to build or have product vision or be involved in it. It's like, what are you doing here? If you don't know, it's like, if you don't know it, yeah, I don't know. Think of it in any other context. If you're like, you're not a dentist and you decide I'm going to buy up dental firms, it's, there's probably a pathway you could do it. But at the end of the day, I guess if you just put the right people, put the dentists in their chairs, they'll make money. So, so that maybe. is like uh, dental roll-ups are definitely a thing. And it's oh, just yeah. a bunch of private equity folks that could wrangle enough money that they could buy it. And who cares if they're not dentists, they understand the finances and can hire dentists. Yeah. Their dads are all dentists. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe that should be something we focus on dental, dental roll-ups or some, and, but I appreciate the niche. I love the nichiness of at least what we're doing. And I think the, the more niched in we get, the better, which is, I don't know. That's like, to me, the joy of the internet. And one of the hopes that I had as a kid, when this was really like starting to bubble up and I wasn't thinking about it in a commerce perspective, but just all like the little niches that are because of the internet, because of the, these, this global interconnection actually are things of scale and are, are interesting, whether it's uh, train collecting or sending people invoices online for your small business. There's a lot of opportunity out there. You just need some kind of course that could help you get started. <laughs> <laughs> Marketer, true and true. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Yeah, I think this is anything else you want to chat through? One last thing is, so I've been helping my former school, University of Chicago, with a podcast. And this week we had our best one come out yesterday. So we had Brian Johnson of Braintree and Kernel on. And oh, he cool. is probably one of the most interesting entrepreneurs today. So he's building Kernel, which is a neural interface company, yeah. which is basically Neuralink's like main competitor. And he sold Braintree, which bought Venmo for $800 million. And then he put almost all his money into the future of humanity. And so he is, is like talking to a time traveler. It's a fascinating podcast. So highly recommend everyone go check that out. It's a, Where Are They Now is the name of the podcast. And Brian Johnson is a recent episode. Can we talk about his business real quick? The the neurally competitor. What was the name again? Colonel. Colonel. Yes. What is, I remember, I think I saw something. What is their approach in contrast to Neuralink? Is it, so is Neuralink, it like external? Yeah. So my wife is a neurologist. So I've actually looked at this stuff quite a bit. So yeah, Neuralink is external. So his big thing is that we basically have no visibility into the brain. And so they have, it looks like a bike helmet that lets you read the brain yes. at much higher resolution than ever before. And then Neuralink is implants. So they implant basically a bunch of like threads into your brain and read it that way. It's two opposing viewpoints on what is the future here. Have you read, you've read Three Body Problem, right? The trilogy? Yeah, I've read Three Body Problem. And then Nexus, uh, the Nexus trilogy is probably most similar to this stuff. Yeah, cool. I haven't read that. I'm, I'm halfway through the three, I'm on Dark Forest, which... There's a shot. It reminds me, I'm just past the section where they have something similar where you can, what is it? I'm going to, a little bit of a spoiler. You can insert faith into the brain. You can insert like a resolute belief. It has me thinking of that. It's super cool. What a great use of proceeds though. You build a business and then work on something big picture that's wildly interesting. So I'll have to go give that conversation a listen. Uh, some other fascinating tidbits about him is he got pretty overweight when he was running Braintree. And then he basically... He called the, he fired nighttime Brian, who was like overeating. So now mm. he only eats one meal a day in the morning and he's lost the tremendous amount of weight. He looks great. He's way healthier. And his whole thing is he wants to make an impact on humanity and he has to last like another 30 to 50 years to do it. 
Yeah, so he's man. giant. He measures everything. That's and the then, way to be. Yeah. And he used to be a Mormon. So he grew up in like the Mormon church. He mm-hmm. talks about breaking out of that, the video game that he was stuck in and like how it messed with his mind and how he had to rebuild everything from scratch. He's just a fascinating guy. Yeah. All right. One more time. Where are they now? Where are they now? Yeah. Where are they now? Okay. We'll go check that out. That's all I got. Anything else with you? No, this is, uh, this has been great. Let's catch up next week. For sure. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.